We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 73 this morning. Psalm 73 this morning. We will primarily be in verse 26 <clears throat> Excuse me today. And the title of today's sermon is God is my strength and portion forever. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one under your seat. You can borrow that Bible. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, the Bible under your seat is our gift to you. In November of 1990, I believe one of the greatest movies to ever be released hit the theaters everywhere. Home Alone. Home Alone, uh, starring Macaulay Culkin, uh, who played the main character, Kevin McAllister. Home Alone was packed full of conflict and resolution. Conflict and revolution. So the obvious uh, conflict to revolution theme, or resolution theme, I should say, is of course the fact that the main character, uh, Kevin McAllister, Macaulay Culkin, uh, was left at home alone, hence the title of the movie, when his family, in a rush to not miss their flight to go to Paris, uh, rushed out of the home, and Kevin, who had been in trouble the night before, was upstairs in the attic, asleep in his bed, and he is left home alone. And so eventually, of course, the family finds their way back home to be back with him after uh, Christmas and all these things. And so that is the conflict uh, to resolution there. Another example of conflict to resolution in that movie involved the bad guys uh, who were trying to break into Kevin's home throughout the movie. And eventually the police apprehend them. He is able to hold them off with all these traps that he sets for them uh, throughout the movie. And then thirdly, Kevin McAllister has this internal conflict throughout the movie of Home Alone. His conflict was that he had decided in his mind internally that the man across the street was a bad guy. He believed that the old man that lived near him, his neighbor, was dangerous. And so he had made up his mind internally that the old man near him was out to do him great harm. Spoiler alert. I don't know if you can do spoiler alerts for movies that are like 30-something years old, but spoiler alert. Uh, he meets the old man at the end of the movie, and he learns that the old man is completely opposite of whom he had imagined him to be. When he took the time to meet the old man and to spend time with the old man, he learned that the old man was kind and protective. He was loving and gentle, and in that way, Kevin McAllister, Macaulay Culkin, had a paradigm shift. Psalm 73 is similar this morning. The psalmist begins with this internal conflict, and he ends with a resolution by the end of Psalm 73, or really halfway through and towards the end, thanks to God's grace. There is this turning point midway through the psalm. I'm going to show it to you this morning in Psalm 73. And so, as I mentioned a moment ago, the primary verse that we'll be looking at, I'll explain all of Psalm 73, but the primary verse that we'll sort of camp out in, if you will, is verse 26. And I want to show you the context and the flow of the entire psalm in order to set up uh, verse 26 more faithfully. And if I could just sum up Psalm 73, it would be this. It is that the psalmist here, and I'll explain who wrote the psalm here in just a moment, but the psalmist is having this internal conflict because he sees the wicked, sinful, unrepentant people around him prospering while he is a righteous man and other righteous people are suffering. So he's struggling with, I thought God was good, but yet the wicked around me are prospering while I'm here suffering. And so let's begin with the author this morning as I kind of set up verse 26 in the entire psalm. 
The author of Psalm 73 is Asaph. You may see that there in your Bible if you're looking at Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. According to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 15 and 16, uh, Asaph was from a Levitical family, and so it was this Levitical family of musicians. Well, King David appointed the Levites uh, to choose certain musicians and singers from amongst their tribe in Israel to lead Israel in worship. And so um, Asaph was chosen <clears throat> in that way as the main worship leader. He was the one whom they all chose to be the lead singer. And so that's who Asaph is. Well, now let me give you this kind of overview of the entire psalm. I kind of explained it to you just a moment ago in terms of there's this conflict and there's this resolution. Uh, so we're going to divide the psalm into two parts in that way. And so the first part, which is the conflict, if you want to kind of jot this down, it's you could describe part one as internal conflict, and that is verses 1 through 15. Verses 1 through 15. And by the way... Uh, the person being described in Psalm 73 is any God-fearing worshiper, like anyone who desires to live a faithful, obedient life. And so if you're born again this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ this morning, the psalmist here in Psalm 73 is not so much giving us an autobiographical account here, but he is describing a model for you as a God-fearer, as a born-again Christian, to emulate this pattern in your own life. Namely, to be honest about the internal conflict that you may have in your own life concerning God and His goodness, but then to trust God out of that conflict to move you from the internal conflict that you may have to a supernatural resolution where you can see God's goodness and you can embrace His promises to be with you forever. So, the goal of Psalm 73 is to move you from focusing on the wicked who are prospering all around you, which can lead you to grow in envy and bitterness and even unbelief, to focusing instead, so taking you from that, to instead focusing on God and His inerrant Word to give you a right and proper perspective of God's goodness regardless of your circumstances. So, the goal of Psalm 73 is to take worshipers from what I would call little God theology to big God theology. The psalm in 73 is to take worshipers from trusting their feelings as ultimate truth and reality and instead trusting God and His Word as ultimate truth and reality. Notice the opening statement in verse 1. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So theologically and intellectually, the psalmist here is describing uh, the worshiper who believes that God is good. Like intellectually, in his mind, God is good. But now I want you to notice this downward step or this downward uh, sort of uh, uh, path that the psalmist takes down and away from God. And we're going to do it in logical order. And the first step that he takes, if you'll look at the psalm here, away from God, is when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Just a small step for now. He just simply sees that the wicked around him are prospering. Look at verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. So all that comes 
first. But in logical order, it is the fact that when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, all of those other things described in verses 2 and 3 happen. So that's the first step. His downward step away from God, away from trusting in God's goodness, was that he saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he believes God is good, according to verse 1. He states that. Again, it says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then there's this big, it says, but as for me, there's this big shift here in verse 2. Uh, he is doubting God's goodness. His internal conflict develops out of what we call keyhole theology. Keyhole theology. Here's what it is. He is zoomed in on his own limited view of the world. He has a small view of God based on his own limited worldview. He was basically judging ultimate reality in his life based on only what he could see through the small keyhole of his life and his life experience. So that is the first thing. He's zoomed in and all he can see for himself in his narrow keyhole view, this keyhole theology is that I'm suffering and the wicked around me are prospering. Notice the second step. His second step is that he developed envy towards the wicked. Even though he believes God is good deep down, he has developed doubt and envy based on the wicked who seem to be prospering all around, around him. Again, he says, I was envious of the arrogant. So he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now he be begins to grow envious of them. His experience has been one of suffering as a righteous per person, while the wicked are succeeding. And he'll describe later in uh, verse 14 that his experience seems to be an experience of punishment. Like God's punishing him is how he feels while the wicked is prospering. He's being rebuked, he'll say in verse 14, while the wicked seem to be enjoying some reward for their sinful lifestyle. And so his observation here has led him to conclude with this sort of scorecard of false dichotomies. He's thinking, okay, you're giving me a rebuke and you're rewarding the wicked. Punishment for me, prosperity for the wicked. Suffering for me, success for the wicked. And so all of this has led him to grow in envy and bitterness, both towards the wicked, I believe, but also, I believe, towards God for allowing it. So that is the second step that he takes down and away from God. And then now notice the third logical step that he takes away from God. It is this. He was tempted to abandon his faith tempted to abandon his faith. According to verse 2, it says, my feet had almost stumbled. So his first step is he begins to observe the prosperity of the wicked. He simply saw their prosperity and saw his suffering through his keyhole theology, his limited view. Then he starts to grow envious and now has led him all the way to the point that his feet have almost stumbled. His steps have nearly slipped. To quote one commentator, quote, his faith did not seem to pay off as expected, and his confusion over this inequity nearly spelled his ruin. And so now listen to how be he, he begins to describe his experience of suffering and the prosperity of the wicked as he looks through the keyhole of his own life, this limited view in verses 4 through 15. For they have no pangs until death. 
Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He's describing the prosperity of the wicked. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily, and they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's thinking, I've been uh, pure and righteous. Has that been for nothing? Because they seem to be prospering while I'm suffering. Verse 14, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, verse 15, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So his feet have almost stumbled. And so now, based on his experience of suffering, he was basically saying internally, uh, either consciously or subconsciously, I would argue consciously, he's basically saying, forget what God has said regarding reality in his word. This is how I feel. He was letting his feelings dictate his own worldview. His theology was being controlled by his feelings, his circumstances, and his own experience, which was limited by his own narrow worldview. But God did not leave him in that state of despair forever. And that's the good news this morning. God did not leave him in that state of despair this morning, and he will not leave you in that state of despair this morning, because I want you to notice the resolution that begins in verse 16. This is the turning point in the psalm. But, it says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God that I discerned their end. So he meets with God in the sanctuary. He uh, fellowships with the God of the heavens, the creator of all things. And as a result, he now describes his steps back towards God in right relationship. So he first walks away from God. And now by God's grace, uh, God is drawing him back to take steps back to God. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. He's taking these steps. This is where it turns. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God that I discerned their end. And so the first step that he took uh, back towards God was that he realized all of his suffering was actually serving a good purpose in his life because God is good. We could call this a first step that he took back towards God was a recognition of God's good providence. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty, and so he's recognizing that God is in control, and he's using all of this to uh, work these things out for my good. And then secondly, his second step that he takes back, not only is he remembering God's goodness and remembering God's providence, but his second step back towards God in faith happened when he realized the destiny for the wicked. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And so now he realizes that the wicked, unrepentant sinners will not go unpunished, that he will actually have a reward. They'll, uh, their end is that evil will be punished. He's basically saying, hey, uh, he realizes like, don't worry, evil will be punished. Justice will be had in the end. And this truth helped him 
Remember that God's justice was going to happen and he was going to trust in God's providential plans. And his final step back to God was not just that he remembered the destiny of the wicked, but he remembered his own destiny. Uh, That is the final step. He remembered his own destiny. Again, similar to how he discerned the final destiny for the wicked in verse 17, he also discerned his own destiny. Look at verses 23 and following. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And like a good Baptist, we can draw four G's out of this. It's, uh, you know, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me uh, by my right hand. So God has grasped him by the hand like a father would grasp his child's hand and hold the hand firmly and tightly and securely and lovingly. God has grasped him by the hand and has not allowed him to get away because God's grip is firm than the psalmist doubt. And so that is the first thing. And then secondly, the second G, first is that God grasps him and he grasps you this morning if you're in Christ. Secondly, he is guiding him with his counsel. That is good news. And then afterward, he says, you will receive me to glory. So God grasps us by the hand. He guides us in this life with his counsel according to his word. And then eventually he'll receive us into glory. That's the third G. And then lastly, he remembers God's goodness. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In other words, God is our satisfaction both in this life and in the one to come. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so those are the that is the progression that he has walked back towards God. He remembers, lastly again, that God is good. God has been good to him. He is good to him in the present, and he'll continue to be good to him into eternity future. And the same is true for you today if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, God has taken you by the hand in grace, and he will not let you go. He is guiding you And he will continue to guide you on your Godward pilgrimage to heaven. He will glorify you one day when your Godward pilgrimage to heaven is complete. And then you will get to enjoy his goodness for all of eternity. So hang in there, friends. Stand firm in the Lord. He is your rock and he has grasped you tightly and lovingly lovingly, by the same hand that will one day bring you home to him where he will glorify you. And because all of that is true, here's what I want you to see from our text today. Twelve words, sermon in a sentence. Be honest about your sinful weaknesses and trust in God's infinite goodness. Be honest about your sinful weaknesses and trust in God's infinite goodness. Goodness. So take your copy of God's Word and look with me at Psalm 73, 26. Hear the Word of God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to see the truth contained here in verse 26? Certainly the entire psalm of Psalm 73, but God, would you remind us of your goodness? Would you help us to be honest this morning about perhaps an internal conflict that we have that's doubting your goodness based on our own suffering and circumstances? 
and be reminded this morning that your word is ultimate reality. You are ultimate truth and reality. So point us to you this morning. Help me as I preach your word to uh, bring you glory and to uh, make the text clear. And I pray for the people that are here this morning that they would hear your word. They would respond in worship and obedience and you would bring great fruit in their life as a result of Psalm 73. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've given you this full picture of Psalm 73. you got the first half, internal conflict. Second half, you have this resolution. He's complaining basically about the wicked prospering and his own suffering. And so now as we zoom in on verse 26, I want to show you four appropriate responses that we must take with our text in view according to verse 26. Number one, be honest about the weakness of your own sinful flesh. Be honest about the weakness of your own sinful flesh. Again, look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And the psalmist here is being real. He is being transparent. He's being honest about his own weakness, and he's describing perhaps an experience that you may find yourself in now. And notice he begins with his flesh. He acknowledges that in his own weaknesses, his flesh is prone to fail, like all of ours is, especially considering the context. There was a time in his past that he looked more at his own suffering and the prosperity of the wicked than he did at God and his goodness, and it led him to being spiritually worn out. I mean, verse 26 has this tone of pure exhaustion to it as he thinks back on how he was within his internal conflict. We can really connect it to verse 21. Verse 21 says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. The CSB translates verse 21 as follows. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded. The message paraphrases verse 21 by saying, When I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy. One commentator, James Hamilton Jr., translated verse 21 from the Hebrew to say this. When my heart was embittered and in my kidneys I was pierced. So the psalmist is describing a scenario of complete mental, physical, and spiritual exhaustion. His innermost being was wounded. He was totally consumed in envy at the wicked and at God. He was pierced all the way in his kidneys. But by God's grace, he has taken steps back to God in faith. But he is remembering here in verse 26 that his own flesh is weak. It had led him astray in the past, and it has the potential to do so again. Listen to how James Hamilton uh, translated verse 26. Spent are my flesh and my heart. Perhaps maybe you feel that way this morning. The rock of my heart and my portion to the age is God. The message paraphrases verse 26 as follow. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is rock firm and faithful. So he is admitting something here in verse 26 that we all need to admit. Our sinful flesh is weak. And the psalmist here was spent. He is admitting that. Similar to the psalmist, perhaps you may see the wicked prospering in, in your own life and be tempted to abandon your faith and join them because you're living an obedient life uh, following Christ on the path of obedience, but yet you're suffering. Similar to the psalmist, perhaps you are uh, growing weary or you have grown weary and you're weary this morning by your own suffering and you may be growing bitter in your actions 
and attitudes towards God and others. Perhaps similar to the psalmist, you may even be enticed to give into the sinful ways of living that you see in the wicked people all around you. Because after all, perhaps in your own limited worldview, it looks pretty appealing. It looks as if they are having so much fun. It appears as if they are satisfied, perhaps in a way that you aren't. It appears as if they are indulging themselves and prospering either in spite of or as a result of their rebellious lifestyle. Either way, you sure are internally, you are being tempted to join them. And so you need to be honest about the weakness of your own sinful flesh. And instead of letting that drive you to despair, look to the God of heaven and be encouraged. Look to the God of heaven because his personal grip of you is firm. I'm reminded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mean, what is he saying here? He's saying your flesh is wasting away day by day. So unless Jesus comes back first, all of you here this morning will die. We know that, right? Your flesh will fail you. Indeed, your flesh is wasting away day by day as you age. So like with each passing second, you are marching closer and closer to your appointment with death. But even though your flesh has and will fail you physically, and even though your sinful flesh will fail you from an obedient standpoint, meaning that you are not strong enough to obey God on your own, God will remain faithful to you. As weak as you are, God is infinitely more strong than all of your weaknesses. To quote R.C. Sproul, We are secure, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because He holds tightly to us. Let that encourage you this morning. It's not about how uh, strong you're holding on to Jesus. It's about how strongly He is holding on to you. You may be exhausted this morning. You are mentally physically and spiritually exhausted. You may be spent. And if that is you, you need to be honest about where you are this morning internally and you need to come find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus invites you to do that. He invites you to come find rest in Him this morning. In Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28, we read Jesus' comforting words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your flesh is weak. It will fail you both now and in the future in your death. So the first response to verse 26 is clear. Be honest about the weakness of your own sinful flesh this morning. And secondly, be honest about the weakness of your own sinful heart. Again, verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So not only will your flesh fail you, but according to the text and elsewhere, so will your heart. In fact, Jeremiah describes to us in chapter 17 the condition of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So contrary to what the world may tell you and what the world may try to sell you on social media and elsewhere, don't follow your heart. Don't do it. Sinful actions are first born in the heart. Jesus' half-brother James 
describes the progression of our own sinful appetites in James chapter 1. Look at James 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sinful desire. Then when desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the birthplace of sin can be traced back to your own heart. In verse 26, the psalmist is remembering a time in his not-so-distant past when his heart had failed him. He is remembering a time in his not-so-distant past when he took steps away from God and became utterly exhausted as a result of his own suffering and the prosperity of the wicked. He is remembering a time in his not-so-distant past when he had keyhole theology, having been consumed by his present sufferings, and he was unable in his own strength to look at God and to look at what God had promised for his future. So he is being honest about the weakness of his own sinful heart. He'd seen his heart fail in the past, and he knows his heart will fail him again. The same is true for all of us this morning. We too, if we're honest, have keyhole theology from time to time. And even though we know good theology, we allow our own limited view of our own life and our own experience to dictate to us ultimate reality based on what we're experiencing. We also experience the failure of our own sinful hearts. And we too, like the psalmist is describing, we grow weary and exhausted as a result. And because of the sinful desires in your heart, maybe for you the temptation to develop keyhole theology is on social media. Your limited view through the keyhole of social media has caused your own heart to grow envious of the wicked around you. Based on your limited view through the keyhole of social media and based on your own limited worldview and life's experience, you have been led to doubt God's goodness internally because the wicked around you and around the world seem to be prospering. What began with merely seeing the wicked prospering and sort of comparing their success to your suffering and sorrow has now led you to full-blown sinful envy within your heart. And so your downward steps of internal conflict did not merely stay at observing the wicked. Like You didn't just stay there and you saw the wicked prospering. Now you have created this false dichotomy scorecard that your feelings have made you believe is ultimate reality. If so, be honest about that. Repent from that. Repent from believing the lie that God is not for you in Christ. Repent from the lie that God is not holding you by His righteous right hand. Repent from the lie that your feelings are ultimate reality, ultimate truth. As John Piper famously said, quote, God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's Word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. So your present reality, no matter how uh, horrific your suffering may be, is not ultimate reality. Your present reality of suffering is not permanent, is what I mean by that. Your present reality of suffering, although it is hard and it is not fun to suffer, it does not change the ultimate reality that God has grasped you by the hand. He will not let you go, but He will guide you to heaven where He will glorify you and let you taste of His goodness for all of eternity. Forever and ever, you will get to enjoy God if you're in Christ. This is the ultimate reality, and His Word has defined it as such. So, the question is, is the wicked prospering around you? I'm sure they are. 
Do you see the wicked around you living sinful lives and seemingly nothing is wrong in their life in the form of suffering? I'm sure you do. Do you look upon the wicked and see them prospering while you continue to suffer? I'm sure you have. Does it seem as if the wicked around you are living a carefree life, indulging in all types of sins with no punishment while you continue to live a life of daily self-denial as you take up your cross and follow Christ and suffer on the path of obedience? I'm sure it does. But know this, their supposed happiness will not last forever and your immense suffering will not last forever. Discern their end. Just like the psalmist did here. The unrepentant will be punished in hell forever. The repentant will enjoy God forever because of the finished work of Christ. And because that is ultimate reality as told to us by God in His Word, you can, number three, be strengthened in the Lord forever. Because now we have ultimate reality being dictated to us by God's eternal and errant Word. Our feelings don't have to draw us downward away from God because ultimate reality is not based upon our feelings but based upon God's Word. Be strengthened in the Lord forever. So even though your flesh and your heart will fail, God is your eternal strength. Again, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word for strength here in the Hebrew is the word that means rock. It means rock. So when you would have asked a Jewish person, to describe God, especially in the ancient world, they would have given you concrete examples of God. For example, if I were to ask a Jewish person in the ancient East to describe God, they would say things like, God is a rock. God is like fresh baked bread who satisfies my hungry soul. God is like a river who endlessly satisfies the thirst of my heart. God is like a bird whom I can find eternal shelter under His strong wings. But if I were to ask the average American to describe God, it may sound a little different. For example, based on like our own Western way of thinking, and I'm the same way, if I were to ask you to describe God, you'd say things like, well, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He is uh, omnipresent. He is gracious. He is loving. He is just. He is good. And all of those descriptions are correct. They're not wrong. But they are different than how the ancient Jewish people would have described God. They are at least incomplete. So they are more abstract and less concrete. Again, rendered more literally, verse 26 would be translated as follows. Spent are my flesh and my heart. The rock, notice the, the word picture that's being painted here. The rock of my heart and my portion to the age is God. So God is strong like a rock. You cannot build the hope of eternity on your own flesh and your own heart and certainly not on your own feelings. You cannot build the hope of your eternity on anything other than God because any other foundation is like sinking sand. But God is a rock. He is strong and He will strengthen His people, even you this morning. The psalmist is weak. His flesh has failed him, his flesh will fail him again. His heart has failed him, his heart will fail him again. You are weak this morning. Your flesh has failed you, and your flesh will fail you again. Your heart has failed you in the past, and your heart will fail you again. But praise God that His love for you and us this morning and His faithfulness to you is not based upon whether or not your heart and your flesh will fail you, because it will. His strong grip is not weakened by our sinful failures. Because you are in Christ, God will never let you go. Not now. 
Not tomorrow, not ever, regardless of your feelings. So, how can you be strengthened to live an obedient life? How can you be strengthened to zoom out from your present suffering in order to see the big picture of your life according to God's Word? Because that's what we see happening, happening for the psalmist. How can you be strengthened and set free from the envy that you may even feel because the wicked seem to be prospering while you continue to suffer? Look to God. Look to Christ. Look to His sinless life. Look to His substitutionary death on the cross in your place. And look to His supernatural and physical resurrection from the dead on your behalf. Because when you look at the crucified and risen Christ in faith, God empowers you in His grace to break free from the keyhole theology that has held you captive. He empowers you to apply a long view to your life, having zoomed out from keyhole theology and apply a long view in your life that one day if you're in Christ you'll be in glory when you look in faith to the crucified and risen Christ you are empowered by his Holy Spirit to rely on a resource that is outside of you to run the Christian race and keep the faith that's the good news because the resource that we're relying on to be strengthened is not ourselves it is God you are not strong enough in your own strength to persevere to the end you are not strong enough to see the wicked uh, prospering all around you while you suffer and then not be driven to despair. You're not strong enough to see your present suffering in your own strength in light of eternity. But God is strong. He is a rock. He is mighty to save. He is holding you by His righteous right hand and He will strengthen you now and forever to walk by faith and not by sight. He will empower you to focus on eternal things and not temporal things. So have you taken steps away from God because of your suffering? Have you taken steps away from God because you see the wicked around you prospering and succeeding? Have you taken steps away from God because you have become consumed with envy at your circumstances compared to the circumstances of others, particularly the wicked? Have you taken steps away from God? Because maybe without even intending to, you have developed keyhole theology and you have zoomed in on your present circumstances rather than looking at the majestic, marvelous, massive, and sovereign God of the entire universe who loves you. Have you grown to doubt God's love for you based on your present circumstances and your present feelings? If so, look to Christ and hope in Him. Be strengthened by Him even though your flesh and your heart have failed you. He still loves you. He never stopped loving you. He is still holding you by the hand. He will continue to guide you to glory. He is still faithful to you despite your unfaithfulness to Him. So be strengthened by Him this morning in faith and remember God's eternal goodness. Again, the turning point for the psalmist happened in verse 16. When he went to the temple to meet with God. When he stopped looking horizontally and he started looking vertically again, he was reminded of God's goodness. He was reminded of God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness and he was strengthened as a result, he was reminded that God is God and he is not. He doesn't need to try to waste his time making sense of his own suffering. By God's grace, he finally broke free from keyhole theology. God set him free. He went from being zoomed in on his suffering and on the prosperity of the wicked who seemed to be enjoying life with no uh, sense of obedience or repentance. But by God's grace, he zoomed out from all of that in order to see the big picture of his life 
under the providential care of God. So when he trusted in God and his goodness, he saw this long and wide view of his life rather than a short and narrow view being dictated to him by his feelings. And when he did, he was strengthened. May you be as well. Be strengthened in the Lord forever. And lastly, be satisfied in the Lord forever. Be satisfied in the Lord forever. Again, look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word that the psalmist used for portion here is this Hebrew word, halek. Halek. The word means share or the allotment of some amount by dividing something. So Jewish people would have understood this to have been similar to their own portion in life. For example... Each son would have received their own portion of their father's inheritance. They would have received their own allotment to enjoy. So in verse 26, the psalmist is referring to the inheritance of all God-fearing people and the inheritance that we all have to look forward to. But unlike a temporary inheritance, the one that we have to look forward to if we're in Christ is eternal. And more than that, the inheritance promised to the righteous is actually God Himself. Look at verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice he said, Whom have I in heaven but you in verse 25. In other words, he's saying, Who will satisfy me if you take me out of this world through death and then bring me to heaven? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. He's basically saying, Who will satisfy believers in heaven? God will. He's our portion. I'll say it this way. Heaven would not be heaven if God were not there. We can talk all day about the benefits of heaven, but if God were not in heaven, it would not be heaven. Like I consider a personal family vacation. My own personal vacation, no matter the destination, it could be the best destination in the world, for me, it would not be fulfilling if I went alone. I would not be satisfied if Rachel and baby girl were not with me on that vacation to enjoy them and their presence. Much more is true with God in heaven. If heaven is our final and ultimate destination, then who will satisfy us there? God will. God is the prize of heaven. But not only will God satisfy us one day in heaven, He's promised to satisfy all of His people even now. Again, notice what He said in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So not only will God be our portion in heaven, but by grace and through faith, He is your eternal portion even now. Let me say it more simply. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy you like God can. He alone will satisfy you. So here's what the psalmist is saying. Be satisfied in the Lord both now in this life and forever when He brings you home to heaven. King David said the same thing in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Because you see the wicked prospering around you, whether it's on social media or in person, perhaps you feel tempted to abandon your faith and indulge in the sin that you see them indulging in because it seems as if they're pretty satisfied. They seem to really be enjoying the things that they're doing. Perhaps you see the wicked around you living sexually immoral lives and you're tempted to think that some kind of fulfillment of this sort of sexual fantasy that you've imagined outside of marriage will ultimately satisfy you. Whatever the case may be, only the Lord can and will satisfy you forever. Only the Lord can and will satisfy the deepest desires of your heart this morning. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy the hunger of your heart. When your heart hungers for intimacy... 
When your heart hungers for pleasure and security and joy and being fully known and fully loved, only the Lord can satisfy the hunger of your heart. Only the Lord can satisfy the ultimate thirst of your heart. Charles Spurgeon noted the similarities between Psalm 73 and Psalm 37 concerning their subject matter. The present prosperity of the wicked and the sorrows of the godly. And then the temptation for the godly to abandon their faith in pursuit of these temporary sinful pleasures over and above eternal pleasures. An easy way to remember their similarities is to reverse the numbers. Psalm 73 inverted would be Psalm 37. Listen to what King David said in Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Friends, will you delight yourself in the Lord? Will you taste and see that the Lord is good like Psalm 34 tells us? And will you be satisfied in the Lord forever? We see a crisis of faith really in Psalm 73. Maybe you're there now. Maybe you have this internal conflict with regards to your faith and you are being tempted even now because of your suffering and because of your limited view of your own life and your own experiences to doubt God's goodness. And that's the question you need to ask yourself this morning. Like you this morning need to ask yourself, Will I look at the temporary circumstances of my own life and the lives of others and be driven to to despair? Or will I look to God in faith and believe the eternal truth of His Word and allow His Word to dictate to me ultimate reality in my life? I began this sermon this morning by telling you about the internal conflict that Kevin McAllister had in Home Alone. By the end of the movie, his conflict was resolved when he met the man whom he had wrongly believed was out to do him wrong. He had a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about doing something is replaced by a new and different way. History has all sorts of examples of paradigm shifts that shifted the way of thinking and doing. Isaac Newton's theory of gravity John Dalton's atomic theory, the germ theory in medicine, or more modern day examples are society going from landlines to cell phones. Some of you are like, what's a landline? Or perhaps the invention of the internet. All of these examples and more radically change the way people thought, taking them from thinking one way to causing them to think an entirely new way. Maybe you need a paradigm shift this morning. Perhaps you've been engaged in your own internal conflict wondering why the wicked are prospering and why you are suffering. Even as a born-again Christian, you've been questioning God's goodness because of your own suffering and you've been asking God this question, why me? Why are you allowing me to suffer like this while the wicked around me seem to be prospering? If that's you this morning, be honest about that. Look to the Lord this morning in faith and be reminded of His goodness. Be reminded of His faithful love to you this morning. Be reminded of His faithful love to you this morning, especially in light of the cross where He proved there that He loves you and will for all of eternity. He proved there at the cross that He is for you and nothing can separate you from His love. He proved there at the cross that He will be with you forever. Cling to Him this morning and forever. Don't listen to your feelings this morning or ever when it comes to whether or not God is good. Look to God's Word, look to the cross, and know that God does love you. He is for you. He has grasped you by the hand, and He will not let you go. He is guiding you, and He will guide you home where He will glorify you, and you will be able to enjoy His goodness forever. So remember this. Be honest 
about your sinful weaknesses and trust in God's infinite goodness. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do this? God, our flesh and heart will fail, has failed. But God, you are our strength and our portion forever. So God, if there's someone here this morning that is um, in the faith, but they're struggling this morning because they have been suffering and they've been seeing the wicked around them prospering. I pray they'd be honest about that this morning like the psalmist did in Psalm 73. And God, I pray that you would give them this supernatural paradigm shift, take them, taking them from that internal conflict to this supernatural resolution where they would be reminded that you are good. They will be reminded that they, they will be with you forever, that you, are, you have grasped them by the hand. You are guiding them, and you will continue to guide them all the way to the point that you will glorify them in heaven, and they will be able to be satisfied in your goodness forever because you are our portion. So. Remind the weary this morning, remind us this morning that you are our strength. You are our portion. Help us to press on in faith. Let your word dictate to us ultimate truth and reality, not our feelings. God, if there's anyone here this morning who does not have a relationship with you, God, I pray that they would look now to you who alone can satisfy them. God, nothing in this life can ever satisfy us. I pray they would, even now, that you would cause them to be born again. They'd, shop, they'd stop shopping horizontally for created things to satisfy them, and they would look to the Creator this morning. They would repent and believe the gospel, believing that you sent Jesus to die in their place on a cross for their sins. He was buried and He rose from the dead. And I pray they would put their trust and their hope in you this morning. God, they can uh, uh, boldly walk out of the back door or the side door. Austin and some of the elders will be out there to talk to them about what it means to repent and believe the gospel. God, as we respond in worship this morning, remind us that you are our strength. You are our portion forever. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.